Scripture reading will be from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I'll be reading from the King James. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. It's good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad that you've come our way. Seems like every week we have a number of visitors that come to be with us, and maybe it's your first time here. We're genuinely glad that you're a part of the worship this morning, and we'd love the opportunity to talk with you, to get to know you. Please let us know if we can answer any questions or um, if if there's anything that you need. We'd love to be able to, to, to talk to you. Keep in your prayers this week. The Moore family, their baby is due to be delivered this week. So Jordan and Aaron, they've been having to quarantine at home, but I know they'd appreciate your prayers as you think about them and, and as you um, as they add a new one to their, their family. Uh, we're happy for them and we're, we're prayerful that, that everything will go well with all of that. Also, we've got a program called, if you're new or if you're a visitor, the program is called Reading in Sync. And what we're doing is during these days of part of us are online live streaming and and part of us are here together. What we're doing is we're reading the Bible together each week. And what it demands of you is that every day, Monday through Friday, that you read a section of God's word. Just a note about that this week. Up until this point, we've always read, or most of the time, read an entire chapter. But this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're just going to be reading two chapters You're just going to read a section of Hebrews 11 each day, and then when we get through with Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. And looking with this question in mind, can I really trust God in things that I can't see? Unseen things. Can I really make decisions based on things that I can't see? And so as we think about Hebrews 11 and 12 this week, the theme is trust and obey. And I hope that this will be a blessing to you and your family as you read together and talk about these things together with your family. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, there are some things said about Jesus that are astounding, that are profound. And I want us to spend our time this morning looking at this particular chapter of Scripture, this particular section of Scripture. But I want to give a little bit of background before we get into Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Because who Jesus is, who he really is, makes all the difference in the world. We've been singing the song, Jesus is all the world to me. And there's a great deal of information of faith behind that expression, behind that line. Jesus is all the world to me. 
In John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus said on the night he was about to be crucified to his apostles, I have many things still to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. In other words, there were things about Jesus that he chose not to reveal during his earthly ministry. There were things about the church and about faith and about coming to God and being right with God. There were things that God chose not to reveal through Jesus during his earthly ministry and things that became clearer after the ascension and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. One of those things was the identity. Who is Jesus really? And there are four primary passages in the New Testament that have to do with the identity of Jesus and the sense in which I'm talking about. Yes, people that were there during the earthly ministry of Jesus could see his miracles, they could listen to his teachings, and they could understand this man is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the prophesied one. They could understand those things. But four passages after his resurrection and ascension that help us to understand in a more profound and deep way who Jesus is. We call them Christological passages, studying who Jesus is, Christological. There are four great New Testament passages about Christ, and the first one is in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, you know the beginning of John probably. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, it goes on to say, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. The passage is about the incarnation of the word of Jesus Christ, this eternal being who has always existed and how he took on flesh and he came to this world so that we could see the grace and truth of God. John chapter 1 verse 14. So the passage tells us more and and gives us additional information beyond and above what Jesus gave while he was here in his earthly ministry. A second great New Testament passage about who Jesus is, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul tells his brethren to have this mind in them, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes into some information about who Jesus is and about where he came from. He existed as God, and yet he did not count it robbery or a thing to be grasped, to be counted equal with God, but he humbled himself and he came to this world and obeyed to the point of the cross, even to the point of his own death. He humbled himself, and God has highly exalted him now and given him a name above every name, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. It gives us information about who this person is that we're putting our faith in and who we're putting our trust in. A third great New Testament passage about Jesus is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We read this just on Friday, if you were reading in sync with us. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is the greatest revelation that God has given the world. God has said everything he's got to say to the world through Jesus Christ. When we want to know what God desires of us, when we want to know what he wants from us, we need look no further than Jesus and who he is and what he teaches through the New Testament. He's God's greatest revelation. Better than the dreams that men like Joseph and Daniel had. Better than the words of prophecy that men like Moses and Jeremiah gave. Jesus is better than all those things. He's God's greatest revelation. 
So these New Testament passages give us some information and background on the identity of Jesus in a very clear and concise way. And the fourth great New Testament passage about the exaltation of Christ, about who Jesus is, as you might have guessed, is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And the point of Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 is this, that nothing and nobody is greater than Jesus. Nothing and nobody is greater than Jesus Christ. And it's this passage that I want us especially to pay attention to this morning because it's important for you and me to be able to say, Jesus is all the world to me. And to understand who it is that's all the world to us. Who is it? Is he going to disappoint us? Because sometimes you might pick a person and you say, that person is all the world to me. And yet, because people are people, they might disappoint us in some way. They're not going to live forever. Those kinds of things. So who am I putting my trust in? Who am I putting my confidence in? Colossians 1, 15 through 20 makes the case that nothing is greater than Jesus. Nobody is greater than Jesus. You know, Bible scholars believe that the early church had some hymns. We've been singing hymns this morning that were written by men. And those hymns are very uplifting and they have very biblical ideas and themes to them. Well, in the first century, they had hymns as well. And those hymns have been lost to us, most of them, in history. But Bible scholars think that Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 might well have been a song that the early church sang about Jesus. And it's all true and it's all accurate and that Paul took the words to this song and he used them to describe who this is, this Jesus that these Colossian Christians had put their faith in. And if that's true... This was their version of singing, Jesus is all the world to me. Think about it. What makes Jesus so unique? What makes him so very special? Colossians 1, 15 through 20 gives us five answers to that question. And here's answer number one, our first point this morning. Jesus is unique because of his relationship to God. Nobody else ever had the kind of relationship to God that Jesus does. Nobody. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The Bible states, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation, it goes on to say. Let's just take those two expressions, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, and think about what they mean for a few moments. The word image is the Greek word icon, an icon, someone who stands as a representative or an expression of that which can't be seen. That's what an icon is. And the problem is that God, the Bible states, is invisible. God is a spirit being. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4 verse 24 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul gives a prayer of praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. God is not able, we can't see him with our eyes. That's, that's the way it's always been. Because of his nature, because of what he's like, we can't see him. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, that we're going to be reading this week, Lord willing. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
And so the thing about God is he's invisible, but then the Bible's saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the icon. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. That's what's being said about him. When we look at Jesus, people could see him with their eyes, but what they were seeing was something more than just a man. He looked like a man, but there's more to him than just that. He is the image by the way he spoke and by the way he acted and by the way he treated others. He is the very image of God himself. And so in John chapter 1 verse 18, that other Christological passage that we talked about a moment ago, John makes this argument by inspiration. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's because God is spirit. Can't see him with your eyes. The only God, talking about Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him. In another passage, in John 14 verse 9, Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so Colossians 1.15 is telling us, and these passages are teaching us, that Jesus is the very image, the very icon of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 that we read on Friday. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If God became human, what would he look like? He'd look like Jesus. He's the best and the perfect representation of who God is. How would God live in this world? How would God treat people? What would be his priorities? All those questions are answered in Jesus because he's the image, the icon of the invisible God. But Colossians 1.15 goes on and doesn't just talk about that. It also says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And this passage, this term has given people some problems over the years. The Greek term is proto, first, tokos, the firstborn of all creation. The word means, and it's got two different meanings. It can refer to, first of all, sequence in time. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, God said to Pharaoh, your firstborn, that is the first one who came from your lineage, your heritage. If you've got more than one child, you've got a firstborn and a secondborn and, and on and so forth. Sequence in time. Firstborn can mean that. But secondly, this term can also mean honor and uniqueness and priority and position. The term also means that. And here's the thing about Jesus. Firstborn over all creation does not mean that he is the first one in the sequence of time that was born in creation. It can't mean that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus didn't come along until several thousand years of history had already passed. How could he be the firstborn over all creation sequence in time if he doesn't come along and doesn't take on flesh until several thousand years have passed of human history? Not only that, if you look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, the very next verse, the Bible's going to make the case that Jesus is the one who created all things. He's the one who brought everything into being. If that's true, then firstborn cannot mean of Jesus that sequence in time, he's the firstborn. So what does it mean? The term means that he is a place, has a place of honor and uniqueness and priority and position. Let me say it this way. 
out of all of God's creation, there's never been anybody more important than Jesus Christ. There's never been anybody among all of God's creation that is more worthy of honor and who is more unique than Jesus. It's a title given to him, the eternal God, in the sense that God uses in Psalm 89, verse 27. When God spoke of a future king and he said, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the way the term's being used. Jesus has priority. He is first. He is foremost over all creation. Another passage, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Jeremiah the prophet said, I am a father, speaking of God, to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim, if you remember, was one of the tribes of Israel. Ephraim was a grandson of Jacob. He wasn't even one of the sons of Jacob. How could he be the firstborn? He's the one that God chose to have the most priority and honor and uniqueness among all the tribes of Israel. And so when the Bible says that Jesus is unique, it's saying he's unique in his relationship to God. That is, he's the representation of God, and there's nobody more important than Jesus in all of God's creation. He's the firstborn over all creation. Secondly, as you look at Colossians chapter 1, I want you to look at verses 16 and 17. What makes Jesus so unique? His relationship to the universe. I'll put the passage on the screen behind me just for translation's sake. We've got a lot of different English translations that are used. I want you to notice the prepositions in this particular section. It's making the case that Jesus is the one who created all things. And here's what it says. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, museums of nature and science... The places where you go to learn about natural science and natural history, they would do well and they would be speaking the truth to take this passage and put it over the doors. Because who Jesus is helps me understand the physical universe around me. He is the creator of all things, according to this passage. By him, all things were made. For him, all things were made. And you stop and think about those prepositions. What it's saying is everything that was made and everything that we can see and everything that we can't see, all of it came from Jesus Christ by his power. Take those prepositions and look at them in turn. What is the relationship of Jesus to the universe? By him. He is the source of creation. Jesus decided that creation needed to happen, and then through him, his power made it happen. The Bible says that God in the beginning said, let there be light. Remember Genesis chapter 1? He spoke it into existence. Well, who is the one who did that? Colossians 1.16 is saying that Jesus Christ, the one who is our all in all, the one who we focus upon, he's the one who spoke all of this into existence. And not only that, it was spoken into existence for a purpose, for him. He's the reason for everything. If we want to find the meaning of life, if we want to find the answers to why are we here and where are we going and what's life all about, we need to look at Jesus because he is the one for whom everything has been created. Not only that, before him, he is before all creation. 
He is first in everything. And finally, in him, all things are held together. It's not just the laws of physics that hold things together. Jesus holds the law of physics together. That's what this passage is teaching. And so when we say, Jesus is all the world to me, he's the one who created the world. He's the one who made everything. And he's the reason for everything. And they don't put this in most science books these days. And they don't put this on the walls when you go to the museum and you're looking at all the rocks and artifacts and things. This is reality, though. This is truth. Jesus is the one who spoke it all into existence. He's the one for whom it exists, and he's the one who holds it together even still today. We ought to praise him because of who he is. Next, as you think about who Jesus is, looking at Colossians chapter 1, notice again verse 16, his relationship to the unseen realm. Instead of focusing on the prepositions in the passage this time, focus on these terms. Jesus created all things, the Bible says, both visible and invisible. That's interesting. So not just the things we can see, but the things that we can't see. Jesus created that too. And then Paul gives four expressions, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. He's talking about spiritual beings. And this was especially important in first century Colossae because 2,000 years ago, if we could get in our time machine and go back and worship with these Christians and live with them, we would find that in their world, there were a lot of people who believed in magical spiritual powers. In fact, there were even some who were coming into the church and they were teaching that we ought to be worshiping some of these beings. If you're looking at Colossians, look at chapter 2 and verse 18, Colossians 2 verse 18, and listen to what is being said. Colossians 2.18, God says to the Christians, Colossians 2.18, let no one cheat you of your reward, Christians, taking delight in false humility and in worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So there were people who were trying to teach these Christians, you know, we ought to pray to, we ought to worship, we ought to sing praises to some of the angels. We ought to give them honor and glory. And Colossians 1.16 cuts all that off at the knees and says, there is no reason for you to try to pray to any angel. There's no reason for you to try to worship anybody who has left this world. There is no reason for you to try to reach out to anything that you can't see and try to have that make a difference in your life because Jesus is the one who created all those things. His relationship to the unseen realm. Several years ago, I was in a bookstore and I happened to walk by. It stunned me because I grew up in East Texas and most everybody in East Texas believed that there's no such thing as witches and witchcraft and that kind of thing. I walked by in this bookstore, a book of spells and hexes. And I thought, surely this must be a joke. And so I picked up the book and I started to leaf through it. This book was no joke. It was on sale in a bookstore, and the idea was that you could read and, and do these incantations and all the things that were required, and you could put a spell on somebody, and you could put a hex on somebody if you so chose. That's what this passage is addressing. The idea that you can go to a medicine man or go to a shaman or go to a, 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 a witch doctor of some kind, and that they can reach out into the unseen realm and they can call these beings to help you and to give you information and to give you strength and healing. 
None of that is worthwhile, this passage is saying, because Jesus is the one who created all those things that exist out there, and all these things were created through Him and for Him. Other passages in the New Testament lend support to this same concept. The Bible says that Jesus in Ephesians 1.21 is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named, Jesus is greater. In 1 Peter 3 verse 22, the Bible says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so the way the first century church, the way inspiration deals with the question of magical powers and spirits and the spirit world, the way the New Testament deals with this is not to say you shouldn't pay any attention to all that because none of it's real. The way the New Testament deals with it is by saying Jesus created all that stuff and he's greater than all that stuff. Jesus is the one that you ought to worship. He's the one you ought to emphasize. His relationship to the unseen realm. He's greater than every angel. He's greater than every demon. He's greater than every spiritual being, whatever they are. Jesus is greater. He's all the world to me. Put your trust and your hope and your faith in him. Next, his relationship to the church. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, look at verses 18 through 20 and read with me. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I want you to think about how Jesus relates to the church. Number one, he is the head. It's a statement of authority. Where do we get our authority as the people of God here in Katy? We are to get our authority from Jesus Christ because he himself is the head of the church. There is no other. Incidentally, he's the head of what Paul calls the body and then puts in parentheses the church. A question worth pondering is this. Can I be in Christ without being in his body, the church? Is it possible for me to be in Christ without being a part of and a functioning member of the body of Christ? Secondly, not only is he the head, he is the beginning, the originator of the church. He said in Matthew 16, verse 18, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Acts 20, verse 28, he purchased the church with his own blood, the Bible teaches. He's the originator of it. It was his idea, it was his plan, and he is the one who owns the church. The Bible goes on and uses that word prototokos, that word that we talked about at length a few moments ago. It uses it a second time in this section. He is the firstborn from the dead. And again, it's not about sequence in time because there were other people who rose from the dead before Jesus did. But Jesus' resurrection is different in a couple of ways. Those other people who rose from the dead, they died again. Not only that, but when you look at Jesus, his resurrection means more. You and I will one day rise from the dead, the Bible teaches If we pass out of this life, Jesus is going to return and all those who have been dead are going to rise again. The Bible teaches that. But Jesus' resurrection is of utmost importance because his resurrection makes everybody else's possible. And that's why Jesus says in John 11 verse 25, I, Jesus, am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies 
And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. His resurrection is most important out of all the resurrections that will ever happen. His relationship to the church, number four, he is preeminent. That in all things he might have the preeminence. There is no room in the Lord's church for anybody else to have preeminence besides Jesus. We sometimes lose that in our modern world, in our modern society. We lose the idea that Jesus is the one who's to be preeminent in the church and nobody else needs to have any preeminence. And so we have our favorite elder, we have our favorite preacher, our favorite speaker. We have people that we look up to and esteem highly because of their faith and things like that. Jesus is the one who has all preeminence. Nobody else can have preeminence besides him in his relationship to the church. He's all the world to us. And then number five this morning, as you look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, his relationship to the cross. It's amazing what this passage does. If it really was a hymn that the early church sang, it starts with, The Godhood of Jesus, the fact that he's always existed. There's never been a time in the past when he didn't and how he's created all things. And it goes from creation all the way down to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a sweeping hymn, if it is a hymn, that deals with so many profound things about who Jesus is. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. It pleased God that in, all the, in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him, verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is all the world to me because of this, because of the gift that he brought. Jesus brought reconciliation to the world. It says all things were reconciled by him. If you're estranged from God this morning, if you're not right with God, there is a way for you to come back to him. And the way has been made by the cross of Jesus Christ. He reconciles us through his cross into the body of his dear son. Not only that, the price that was paid. People talk a lot about currencies these days. They talk about, you know, the reserve status of the dollar and things like that, about Bitcoin and all these alternative, you know, currencies. And you can buy and sell certain things depending on what currency you have. If you go to a foreign country, you can use a different currency to buy things in that country than you do in this country. The blood of Jesus is the ultimate currency because it's the only currency that could ransom, that could purchase a soul. Can't buy a soul with money but you can buy it with blood. And the blood of Jesus Christ is what redeems us from our sin, not silver and gold, not those things, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, but the blood of Jesus. And then the blessing, having made peace. God's not angry because of my sin anymore. There's peace between me and between God because of what Jesus did at the cross because of the work that he accomplished, because of the sacrifice that he gave, Jesus is all the world to me. And when you think about this section of Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is really the bedrock foundation of the entire book. Because what the book's doing, brothers and sisters, listen to me here for just a second. What the book is doing of Colossians is it's telling you 
you don't need to go anywhere else to find what you really need. You don't need to go to anybody else to find what you really need. Jesus is all the world to anyone who will come to him because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of what he invites you to do. To come to him in humble, submissive faith and to obey the gospel. To be just a Christian, a child of God. Jesus makes that possible and he's the only one who could ever do that. When we hear things like this and we we understand who Jesus is, how can we say anything else but hallelujah, what a Savior. We have an amazing Savior, unique in every way, and we ought to appreciate His uniqueness more and more as time goes on. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a New Testament Christian. And you'd like to be baptized because you realize that that's how you begin your walk with Christ. That's how you become a child of God. And you want to do that. There's no better time than right now to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you need to respond and you want to ask for prayers. Whatever your need is, won't you come while together we stand and sing this song of invitation.